Hello and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I am Carl Christensen, joined tonight by Tim, the lead lemming Cox. The <laughs> lead lemming. That's sensible. And, well, uh, that is it. My, is it sensible? <laughs> well, for the lead lemming, it is. Think the the power you feel at having everyone following you. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for being the lead lemming, right? Like lemmings generally get a bad rap because of the whole cliff jumping situation, but <laughs> at least you're the one in charge, right? That's right. I'm not a follower. You know, <laughs> I take my fate into my own hands and leap bravely into the unknown. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is just a stooge following the tail beat in front of them. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we we right. had to do one on, like, you know, misconceptions about wildlife. I was just reading the other day about how the um, false notions about piranhas and, uh, like, how it's not exactly, you know, what what uh, we've been given to understand, you know. Well, anyway. okay, I, I might question the whole lemmings constantly jumping off cliff thing. That might be a mis a, mis a folk uh, story, but I don't, I'm not going to trust anyone that tells me piranhas aren't dangerous. So, in fact, I propose we do an on-site debunking episode in the <laughs> Amazon, where we jump into the water and prove to the world that um, it's it's okay. false. I don't think we're going to do that, uh, though. I do think that would probably up our YouTube views substantially. <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly, uh, you first. You're a stronger swimmer. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, swimming a piranha. Um, okay. Tonight, the podcast is going to be about Creoles, Creole languages. Um, we are a bit late for this podcast. Usually we release them every two weeks. This one's a little late, and it is, of course, Tim's fault. Um, I, I don't mind taking the blame, actually. Once again, the lead, lead lemming. I mean, <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's the thing. When it was my shift for jumping off the cliff, I was so late I missed it, and I'm still here. <laughs> That's right. Okay, Creole languages. Let's do a little bit of uh, background here. So I'm a, uh, my degree is in linguistics, so I have some knowledge about this. I also learned a Creole language when I was living in Suriname. Um, to some extent, obviously, I'm not a native speaker of Sonanantongo, but it is a language at which I'm uh, cursorily, a little bit more than cursorily familiar. Um, but Creole languages are very unique and very interesting. Tim, I believe you're reading a book or recently finished a book about Creole languages, correct? Yes, yes. And um, I'll maybe share some things from it. The author, by the way, John McWhorter, super cool, really knowledgeable about languages. He's like a, he teaches something, something at some Ivy League place, whatever, whatever. And, you know, oh, that's he knows good information. It should be really <laughs> easy to look it up now. What you what you know about uh, what you should expect from uh, our podcast? Eh? Oh, with <laughs> associate professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley. There you go. So ah, okay, there we go. There's there's the UC Berkeley has some cred uh, credibility. So good to get that. So Tim has some information that might be useful, um, <laughs> which is better than usual. So. <laughs> <laughs> No. Uh, okay. Let's talk, first of all, the word Creole. I feel like there's some like uh, confusion. Generally, people associate, when we just talk about a Creole language, people jump automatically, at least where I live in the United States. 
Uh, they think automatically Haitian Creole. Um, the word Creole, though, is is more of a family of languages. And I thought it would be also useful to know that the word Creole comes from a Latin word, which I I don't feel like I should actually try to say. Um, but it sounds kind of Creara, whatever. Anyway, it's um, a Latin. You what? <laughs> what, is, what is it? Um, yeah, I'm trying to find my notes here. It is Criar. Is that maybe? Uh, spell it for me. C-R-I-A-R. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable. Oh, actually, to sorry. Speak Latin, but that's uh, a, Oh, sorry. That's not the Latin form. I, I took a note on the Latin form is C-R-E-A-R-E. Creare. Creare? Yeah. Creare. There we go. Creare. Anyway, it means to create. And so um, that gives you a little bit of insight into the kind of languages that we're talking about here. These are languages that have been created in, in particular circumstances. And so let's talk a little bit about the history uh, of language. And I'm going to yeah. I'm going to challenge that etymology just on my Insta research here that um, I'm looking up the I just searched etymology Creole and like I think it's actually was originally describing the people um, who maybe spoke it with that. Do you think I don't was, know? Was, I did. I did see some different etymologies for this word. I always default to the Wikipedia one. Um, people really throw Wikipedia under the bus, but when you have a whole lot of people that have uh, edit editing rights and generally people that are interested in editing, uh, are people that are null. Anyway, I, I don't know that it is the case that the, the etymology for the word Creole in the article on Wikipedia about Creole languages is the correct etymology. It is one of a few, but this one does seem to make sense. So I don't know. I'll offer just a, a little more on the story based on NewOrleans.com. You know, the what a lot of at least Americans think when they think Creole, but that the word derives from Criollo, variation of the Spanish verb criar, meaning to raise or bring up, originally referred to New World-born offspring of Old World-born parents. And as a Spanish teacher, I can vouch for that, that uh, uh, Criollo would have been a, so, you know, a uh, Spaniard family comes to the new world and the children born there in the new world had that status. So it was actually a real um, pretty complex caste system um, based on your origin and, and um, you know, right. your genetics and, and so forth in the sure. colonial world. Anyways. It is the case that um, I know that when I lived in Suriname, uh, People are, I mean, even in Suriname, people are referred to as Creole people. Uh, um, so it is something that's associated with people and language, whether or not they have the same or different etymologies or with the name for the languages came from the name for the people. I don't know. But it, the word, what we can certainly establish is that there is a word in Latin <laughs> that does mean to create, uh, that uh, that supposedly gave rise to the words in, uh, the word in Spanish, which then may have, according to Tim's etymology, then led to the uh, naming of the uh, of the people, and then led to the naming of the language. Anyway, um, but let's talk quick, real quickly. This is going to be a short podcast, um, but we're going to talk briefly about the history of, of normal language change. Um, if you're familiar with um, history, you see language change 
all over the place and for a variety of reasons. Um, conquest, war, generally the biggest language changes come because of that. But then, I mean, just anywhere around uh, the uh, borders where, where you are uh, mixing with uh, people that speak a different language that that's going to influence the language that that you speak and so then you get loan words um you you know you get bilingual speakers that are having an effect on the language and then you have natural processes inside a language that uh, that create new words that uh, that you know shorten or change um how particular syntactic structures are are made in language so there are natural language processes that can change your language from within and there are change, changes to a, a language from externally as well um, and so that's how you get a language that that has a kind of a, a very unique flavor even though it comes from a language if you're looking at all the european uh, romance languages you know tim you speak french uh, no you don't you speak spanish uh really <laughs> your uh, French and Spanish are not mutually intelligible. Yeah, well, it's uh, I always tell people if there are no other French speakers in the room, then I speak very good French. Uh -huh. <laughs> OK, uh, exactly. So um, and and that and those languages, you know, changed over the course of hundreds and th a thousand years or whatever from Latin um, and but they came from the same parent mother tongue. And, yeah, and they if just, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to insert a, a a comparison that I use for my um, for my students. You know, whenever they wonder why why is it said that way, or why is there this exception in the rule? You know, every every language has exceptions and quirks and stuff. And I tell them it, it's like a, a vine. Language is organic. And um, actually, when you come to think about it, it's the only man-made thing that is also organic. Um, and and as such, it, it well, it, I mean, Johnny would uh, say that you know the variety of things that that the things that come out of your gut probably organic. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but but mine's the best one because. <laughs> but but anyways, the so these things yeah occurring naturally. Think of a vine growing up a wall. It, each you know you plant three different vines in three spots along the wall. They're all from the same you know, parent plant, um, and they're each going to take a different shape and grow in a different direction. And that's what happens naturally with language. Um, anyways, and languages, families are often written actually, or described as trees and branches and so sure. forth. Right. Yeah. And, and you can trace it all the way back to like Proto-Indo-European. There's supposed to be a mother, uh, a language from which all European languages sprang, um, that you know, take, takes you well pre, pre-Latin. Um, and, uh, anyway, but we're not going to talk all about language history, uh, right now. I just wanted the basic understanding of, okay, that's how languages change, uh, internally and, and with some external influence. A Creole language is, is, uh, is different than that in, in kind of the fundamental way, uh, the, that it, it doesn't kind of grow from one language organically. It, it is a new created language that is influenced by two, at least two, um, usually more than that, uh, other languages. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the Creole formation. Now I read a little bit about, um, and, and like I said, I'm familiar, I've studied this as well, but I read tonight that some linguists believe that a pigeon isn't necessary before a Creole. I don't understand that 
I, I don't apparently haven't done enough reading about the linguists that are in this school of thought, but I do think they're in the minority generally. Uh, but in order to form a Creole language, the thing that forms first is what's called a pidgin language. And by that, we do not mean pidgin as in the variety that Tim feeds when he goes to New York. Right, Tim? Well, uh, uh, New York, London, um, <laughs> cheaper in London, it's only tuppence, but. Uh, tuppence, okay. Yeah. Yes, um, this is a, a type of, of language, a pidgin language is a language that gets formed as a result of language contact and, and uh, uh, the need to communicate across language barriers. So often formed in, in you know, seaports, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, where you'd have people speaking an African language and uh, French or a, uh, you know, you're a Dutch and, and another African language or English. And anyway, a variety of different languages coming in contact and we need to be able to communicate in order to sell goods, to barter, whatever else. And so you now are creating a particular set of words that people are able to communicate with um, and the basics forming of a language. The uh, pidgin language though is unique in that there are no native speakers of a pidgin language. You just learn it in order to you know do some task. Uh, like I said in most cases it's some type of you know uh, economic transaction um, and and or you know working with people um, so the sorry, like, what was that oh sorry i just i'll just put in and and like 90 percent of what i'm sharing is from this book i'm reading by james mcwhorter so i'll just kind of just assume that everything i say is from him but it, he actually shares an, an example that at least a lot of um western um um people will be familiar with it, you you actually have seen Pigeon language is just depicted if you've watched an old Western movie. Um, and and uh, you know, footnote here, uh, obviously there's lots of problems with Western depictions of Native Americans and and stereotypes and so forth. So don't um, don't presume to think that the um, the language that people are speaking in in um, in those westerns is an accurate depiction of of true pigeons, but there is actually some correlation where, you know, so, so like this idea that the stripped down language where you just have, you know, a handful of adjectives, maybe one or two um, prepositions, and then, you know, basic words, you know, like, you know, heap big, whatever, that if you've heard something like that depicted in, in a Western, what you're seeing is Hollywood's anguished depiction of a pigeon, um, language communication because they're on the on the uh in the you know 1800s and in the united states west and kind of frontier there was a need at, at the situation that carl described you had people of various language backgrounds all needing to communicate and um kind of hash jobbing together a a um language i'll uh, i'll repeat that so you can cut out the alexa in the background here but you, you have a populations in flux with a lot of people with different language backgrounds needing to communicate. And so kind of 
um, creating this shared, stripped-down, super basic language to communicate. And so, anyways, you, you've seen it depicted in Hollywood. Um, that that's what we're talking about. The kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about a pigeon language. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So pigeons are certainly unique in um, a lot of ways from the uh, yeah just just kind of the aspects that we we're outlining. And uh, the, what we're going to now talk about a little bit is the way that a pidgin becomes a Creole language. So we talked about how pidgin languages are uh, transactional, right? The idea that uh, I, I need something done, and so I'm going to use this limited set of, uh, of words and structures, language structures, in order to, to get a job done. Um, but as we all know, that's not how languages work. Um, not not how L1, L1 stands for your first language, as opposed to L2 or whatever other number of languages that you might be familiar with. Your your native language, your L1 is is how you think, it's how you process, it's how you you know interact with the world around you. And so, in order for a pigeon to become that, there more is required, right? You, you language needs to move from transactional to um you you know just the whole the whole experience and um and so once you start having children that are learning a pidgin language as their first language uh that is when all of a sudden you see unique linguistic aspects starting coming up abstract ideas being discussed um and all the syntactic morphological and uh lexical elements of a full-fledged language. And so that is uh, when we move from being a, a pidgin language to a Creole language. Tim, is that what Dr. McWhorter told you as well? I, well, somewhat. He he said that the the kind of the children aspect is, is generally an oversimplification because it's technically not uh, necessarily, and, and in fact, a Creole language, or a pidgin can shift to Creole um, with adult speakers, if they are, you know, if they're using it in a, in a situation where it becomes not just a transactional language, but a lingua franca, I think in practice, or that's that's probably a you know a technicality that would only interest linguists. I think in in practice in the real world, the the line there is blurry, anyways, because as those adults are adopting the language in you know for everyday use and not just for transactions in a community um it becomes you know d does it become a creole at this moment or at this moment well yes <laughs> <laughs> right but but right. the bottom line is that yeah when when the language no longer becomes a a rude instrument to affect a transaction or um you know take care of business but rather a a, a um a, a language which is used to express the whole range of human emotions and experiences um, at that point it becomes a creole and as it does so it acquires all of the grammatical and you know other trappings that define a language right right and uh yeah that i guess that is a useful distinction and i would trust dr mcwhorter than uh, more than i would trust me um that said i, th I think until a language is spoken natively, even even if I'm using it 
um, as a more a lingua franca, there is still something to be said for a person in uh, that is using that language in their mind, um, as opposed to someone that's that, that is still just interacting with the world around, but mm. still thinking, still thinking Portuguese, still thinking French. You know, um, as soon as it becomes the the, the language of the mind, uh, your mind's going to do. Uh, the the language takes on a new structure, I guess, is my point. Um, okay, yeah. But yeah, Dr. McWhorter would probably tell me something about that as well. So um, <laughs> I think in okay. practice, though, the, the definition that you gave is is logical and uh, accurate. Right. OK, um, a few things about Creole languages, a few linguistic um, these these are kind of rules of thumb. I don't know if they apply to every single uh, Creole language out there, and we're going to talk a little bit later about the number of Creole languages that exist and uh, how many speakers there are. But kind of as a general rule, uh, uh, Creole languages have a particular set of linguistic characteristics that I think is unique, and we I was going to uh, touch on a few of them. Um, says uh, Creole languages are generally characterized by smaller inventories of sounds, especially consonants, than the languages which they were presumably based on. Hmm. So uh, that's a, a unique, interesting uh, fact about Creole languages. Um, absence of which, so there's, sorry, what was that, Tim? Oh, sorry, I was going to say that makes sense when you think about how a Creole forms. You know, you've got people coming together from different language backgrounds and as you do so, you're cobbling together. You kind of need to get the the um, uh, the lowest common denominators. So mm -hmm. if a large portion of speakers don't use the th sound, then that th sound will likely not filter out and not be in the Creole. And then if another group doesn't use the um, you know the glottal r or whatever the back of the throat r, then that will filter out. And so you're left with just a a simplified. Um, representation of, of what um, all these sounds that humans can make. Right, right. And that's kind of, I guess, the rule across all of these things I'm about to list here is that that we're trying to distill the the yeah, the, these basic rules, which we can all agree on and we can all make use of uh, that might not exist in our uh, uh, in, in our various, uh, you know, mother tongues and they're being distilled into a pigeon, which is then you know, gr grows back out into a, a Creole, uh, but still lacks these characteristics, which you'd see in, in you know, most of these mother mother tongues. So absence, you know, the small inventory of sounds and then absence, absence of consonant clusters. So, um, yeah, that, that makes sense as well. Consonant cluster sounds are, um, str you know, anytime where you have, three consecutive uh, non-vowel sounds. It's pretty unique to a language um, and often difficult for non-native speakers of the language to create that sequence of, um, of consonants. So that's one that would fall by the wayside. Um, and lack of tones. Uh, in English, we don't do a lot, at least not in, in some ways, we don't do the at least the difference in, in lexical meaning in, in words, um, but the uh, lack of tones in, in 
holds true to pidgin languages as well. So um, as far as grammar goes, it says Creole grammars are generally simpler than the grammars of languages in which they were originally based. There's uh, usually an absence of number, gender, and case marking and nouns and adjectives. So once again, in English, a, a lot of most of our listeners obviously have English as their native language, not particularly familiar with number, gender, or case markings. Um, Tim, do you? How do you teach case, uh, or do you teach case to uh, your uh, your students? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, we're, <laughs> I, and I teach Spanish one, and I've dabbled a little in teaching Spanish two. So we don't really get too complex. Um, I mean, usually, if, if there's anything that, um, fortunately, going from English to Spanish, they are similar enough that I can usually reference something in the English language um, that's you know, similar to, from Spanish, that's similar to English. But in any case, the, the, um, yeah, we just, so, so sorry to disappoint you there, but. Uh, no, that's, <laughs> I, I, I didn't think you would. I guess my point is that to children, you, uh, cases, is, I mean, it's complicated and we're not even going to dive into it further here other than it's a particular way that you form words in order to give you kind of syntactic information. Um, and so what would a good example be for English speakers? I mean, the, the, the various ways that we create pronouns, I guess, but it's, it's different than case would be like in German or, um, or Latin, uh, right, right. Um, so I, I don't teach this. I'm familiar with case in as much as I've studied linguistics and I so, speak. So, and I'm, I, let me make sure that I'm getting this right. So case, so for example, if like a, a noun is a subject or right. a, an object. So for example, if I'm, uh, if I punched the bag versus the bag punched me, I guess that's not a very good, uh, <laughs> that be a are you frequently a punched really by bags? weird example either way yeah. i was trying to think of something that wouldn't be offensive <laughs> or get me into trouble it, uh, <laughs> uh, those bag bags lobby. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah 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 i mean that, that a very basic uh, yeah i mean there's in some languages there's you know accusative there's sub subjective you know there's lots of different cases um uh, and I'm honestly not familiar with them because my L2, which is Dutch, very basic case structure as well, uh, very little. Um, it's it's kind of tossed, lost that over the years versus uh, versus your your Germanic, which has more casing. Um, anyway, but um, not to belabor the point, we're learn learn it from a layman here. Let's just say that some of these more complex part of language um, are once again being left to the side in grammar. So for, uh, it does say that um, that uh, Creole grammars can sometimes have fairly complex systems of personal pronouns, which kind of surprises me. It's not what I'm familiar with in, in the Creole that I'm familiar with, but that's what that's what I read. So I think it's obviously true. Uh, invariant <laughs> invariant vor verb forms, so verb forms that don't change, and they're derived from the infinitive or based on the least marked finite verb form and that I am familiar so the the uh in Soran Antongo like love is lobby and loved um you know all, there you don't conjugate the verb the verb is always lobby 
and if you and want to talk. the uh, verb the, and that I think is true of of uh, you know yeah Creoles all around. Um, the verb is then um, <clears throat> modified by markers, right? Like you right. know, I have and which actually not too foreign from English. I have run, I will <laughs> run, I can't. You know, um, those are sure. uh, we we are doing the same thing there. We're not conjugating. The verb, like you wouldn't say a, a romance language where, you know, each of those would have a different conjugated form. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, you know, Sonano Ntongo doesn't, I mean, there is no conjugation for any of the variety. Like, we love, you know, he, all of that is just lobby, 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 lobby. Um, <laughs> so uh, you don't I have to worry about that. Sorry, I was just going to stop and, and just to offer a word of caution to our listeners, this um, talking about how Creoles in general tend to be simpler than other languages is not to say that they're any less a language than, um, you know, other languages. I, I think we, we learn from these that language, um, there is complexity in language, but not always the same kind of complexity. Um, so just because a language generally, these languages generally tend not to have tone or tend not to have some of these other things that you see being quite rich and complex in other languages, there's still just as much a language. Um, right, sorry, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's something I learned, you know, in, you learn early in linguistics if you're studying it in college is we don't try to take, uh, you know, the, we're not judging languages, we're observing languages we're trying to figure out how languages work. Uh, we're not trying to pass judgments on whether or not a particular form of a language is, yeah, like Mark, uh, some people are stupider. I mean, that's silly. It's, it becomes just, it's silliness when you're just trying to observe how languages are used because they are tools. And so we're trying to observe and figure out what the language rules are and how they work. So, um, yeah, we're not, we're not trying to pass any judgment on whether or not the language is, uh, there is no judgment to be passed. It's literally just observations about the form of the language. So, yeah, uh, yeah, good point, Tim. Okay, one or two last things, and then we're going to move on to the number of languages, uh, Creole languages, and the number of speakers, which I think is useful and interesting information. So, um, but just a couple more things: um, the uh, negative particles are placed before the verb in Creole, almost all Creole languages, and. Um, that's not all the, obviously always the case in, in other languages. Um, and then fixed word order with no inversion in questions. Um, so instead of are you going, it's you going on vacation. You know, uh, so we don't, you're not seeing that type of, of word swapping in the syntactic structure of Creole languages. Um, so... And then the last thing is just vocabulary is restricted. Words in Creole languages usually have a greater range of meanings uh, than in the language in which they were borrowed from. So uh, that is also my experience in uh, Sonanandongo is, yeah, I mean, one word can just uh, a host of different, um, and, it, and in some ways that's super nice when you're learning it, but it does mean that you know, there's a lot of context around it. You've got to, um, you know, understand the whole sentence um anyway but it well, is uh it's okay. yeah, i was going to say this can lead this is often why creoles are misunderstood 
and people think oh, that's just you know uneducated English or whatever um, because they're you know they, they hear these words and they say oh yeah that, that's all English words but they're just saying it wrong and um, what they're not understanding is that those um, length those words have been co-opted or, or borrowed and are now being used in a different way to serve a different purpose and um, and anyways it's um that's yeah, um, a for common sure. misconception with Creoles yeah, let me give a quick anecdote here before we uh, then talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, as I was going down to Suriname, um, this is obviously many years ago now, but I had learned Dutch uh, and I had expected that I would be using Dutch. I knew that there was a Creole language spoken down there. Um, I didn't yet know the ubiquity and I think I knew it was technically the lingua franca, but at the age, I was 19. I don't think I knew what lingua franca meant. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm sitting in the airport. I've studied Dutch. I feel pretty good about my Dutch. I mean, as much as you can as a 19 year old who whose first language is English. Um, but I felt I felt like I'd be OK with my Dutch. Um, but and obviously I'm, I'm a, a ling, English speaker. So I'm sitting there uh, flying from Trinidad to Suriname. And there's a family behind me <laughs> who's who's, you know, just, just talking and I'm hearing some Dutch hearing some English and I am petrified because I had no idea what they were saying <laughs> and and this is one of those one of those cases where you I've heard other people if they're you know doing a study abroad or whatever the case might be where you uh, you think that maybe you've learned the wrong language or you're completely and woefully unprepared and uh, so I'm thinking I've I mean I'm an idiot I'm I've I've studied the wrong language I'm incapable and uh, I should probably just give up. Um, luckily, I had a, a, a companion that was with me uh, traveling, and he told me that, the, and he was familiar. He said that's uh, that's Sonantongo. Um that's the that Creole language, which is an English English based Creole, which with a lot of Dutch influence. Um, and so, it isn't either one. And there are African words thrown in. There are Portuguese words, and and so um, I felt a lot better. Uh, and then it took me another year until I was able to parse at least a large percentage of Sonorantongo when it was being uh, when native people are speaking it. So, um, yeah, that's uh, it can be a lot when the when you uh, when you hear a creole language because you think you oh yeah i'm hearing a lot of words that i'm familiar with it's pretty simple yeah i mean but learning the language is learning a language so yeah all, all of that nuance um right and uh yeah right. because uh, and and this is what we learn from creole languages they show us that language is is human and <clears throat> language develops to express human thought and emotion and so any any language that is regularly spoken and, and as you say that that inner inner the thought language l1 is uh, is going to necessarily be uh that complex enough to do that and which is you know astoundingly complex if you stop and look at what language does Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last couple of things here. Um, the uh, number of Creole languages. So, 
like I said, I think the default, at least in the United States, is when we hear Cre a Creole, unless you're a linguist, you think Haitian Creole. And that is probably for a good reason. Um, there are over 7 million speakers of Haitian Creole. It is the largest Creole language. Um, and so, you know, especially where that's on the same general neighborhood as the United States, um, it makes sense that that would be the one that you would default to, one that you've probably run across before, someone that speaks Haitian Creole. Uh, it is, however, just one of probably over 100 Creole languages spoken in the world. Now, I say probably because the number of Creole languages is hard to really nail down because they're often not super well documented. And uh, that is one thing I, I, I wanted to touch on, and, and then I spaced it. So let's come back to it really quick. Um, writing a Creole language is often uh, the last step in um, in it becoming you know, a full-fledged language, and, and often not one that is really undertaken seriously for decades um, after the, the Creole, if not longer, maybe even longer in, in the case of some of these Creole languages that they've existed for a long time without really a written form. And so I know, and once again, my anecdotal experience with Sonarantongo is um, a lot of people didn't know how to read it. Uh, a lot of people that spoke the language had no familiarity with how to read Sonarantongo because there wasn't really a unified form of Sonarantongo. The spelling was just all over the place. It depended on your L1 for some, to some extent and how you thought a word was spelled. If you're a Dutch speaker that learned Sonarantongo, you spelled the Sonarantongo words like a Dutch person would. If you're an English speaker that learned Sonarantongo, you spell it like a, an English person um, would. And then all the people that uh, there are a lot of people from India over there. I mean, they have their influence for L1 influence. Anyway, the 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 orthography, the writing of of the Sonarantongo is it is standardized technically, but even now um, it is not the case that the majority of speakers care as much about how you they're told to spell it. They'll spell words however they want if they ever write it, which is infrequent because they all have their L1s and uh, Sonarantongo is rarely an L1 still. But it is for some people, it is a full-fledged Creole. Um, but most people speak a different L1 and then Sonarantongo as Creoles or want are, is frequently a lingua franca. That means the language of the streets. It's how people communicate. Um, and so uh, orthography is, is very unique uh, because often these are just um, you know, fully uh, verbal languages. And so it's hard to figure out the exact rules of the language when nobody can write it down for you. Uh, Tim, did you have any insight into that? Well, I think just the nature of Creoles that uh, you would see that in, in all Creoles, I think, because um, they um, are... Uh, you know, by nature, they're non-standard, right? These are languages that not only haven't been around a long time to be standardized, but also um, are often created at the margins of a society. You take Suranantongo, for example, the language of prestige <coughs> in Suriname would be Dutch, I presume. <coughs> and so that's, that's the cool. one where in situations where people are concerned about writing and spelling, um, so Suranantongo is just not going to be... Um, 
you know, as uh, like um, worried about. Correct. You're right. Yep. The general, the the academic uh, pursuit of of language is not applied. Uh, the rules of academia are not applied to Sonanantongo. Once again, anecdotally, um, any yeah, anytime you're in kind of a higher class place, you can hear it in the language. Suddenly, everyone is speaking Dutch. Um, as soon as you go into a nice restaurant, as soon as you are in circles of people that are kind of a higher class, they all know Sonanantongo, but they wouldn't be caught speaking it among themselves because they kind of look down on it. Um, and so it is only in the, uh, the poorest people that speak it at home amongst each other and or mixed um, uh, mixed families of coming from different uh, different countries. Uh, a number of people, the, the, the husband or wife was born in Suriname, uh, sorry, Suriname, grew up in uh, Suriname and married a Guyanese person who speaks English. And so then the only language that they can speak with each other is Sonanantongo. So then that would be the language spoken at home. Um, so that is a, a scenario where then once again, the, the children and the family all inter interact in Sonanantongo. And uh, anyway, th there are lots of cases where Creole languages fit these very unique um, niche situations. And uh, yeah, generally the, um, the, the higher up the social order you go, the less you hear this Creole language, at least in Suriname. Uh, in Suriname. Uh, it's not, I, I'd imagine that it's different in the in different countries, but I don't know. I mean, like you said, a lot of the history that we've talked about already about Creole languages leads you to a similar type of setup um, where the, the language of, uh, of, you know, the economic power is going to be the one that you want to speak in order to move up the social uh, you know, ladder, whereas the language of the of the Creole uh, is maybe potentially looked down on. Um, I think some countries have, have moved beyond that to some extent, but except in my in my anecdotal experience, it is the case that um, it's at least as of fifteen years ago, it was still the case. And and I think that it's going to be true in any case where the language, the the Creole language, doesn't become the standard language of the. Uh, of the the population, I think. So, for example, um, I think most colonized places are going to be like like Suriname, where you're going to have the Creole is commonly spoken, but it's not the the language of prestige. Um, a couple of exceptions exceptions would probably be Haitian Creole, right? Where right. Um, and and of course that happened that that probably wouldn't have happened if the Haitian revolution hadn't been successful, <laughs> you know, in, um, you know, in places where the, um, you know, where the, the colonial power was not ousted force forcibly, like in Suriname, um, you know, you didn't have that, um, total expulsion. And so the, the colonial languages remain. Um, yeah, though it is, it is interesting. Sorry not to interrupt, but once again, oh, anecdotally, the, the the Dutch in Suriname, the, the majority of people in Suriname, once again, based on my anecdotal experience, uh, aren't particularly fond of the Dutch. Um, and so there is a segment of the population that really doesn't want much to do with the Dutch language. 
but most of them view it more as kind of a, a means to an end. They still don't like the Dutch, but they view the Dutch language as a stepping stone to for money and power. And so, um, but as of, I don't know, 15 years ago, once again, they're one of the a pol a major politicians in Suriname uh, just refused to speak Dutch. Um, he just said, look, I'm going to speak Suriname. I'm going to speak Sonorantongo, and that is our language, and I don't want anything to do with these this Dutch anymore. And I expect that um, the uh, one of the factors too is is the homogeneity of the population. Suriname right. still has a very diverse population, whereas you look at um, say in you know in Haiti, the population was um, it, you know was is I, I don't suppose homogenous is the right word but but at this point in their history that you know you've got a relatively homogenous population yeah yeah as soon as you could the number of speakers once again going back to i guess the number of speakers it's going to affect the ability that that language has to give you any type of social leg up or, or power or feel comfortable in a particular language if you speak a language that is not spoken by more than 10,000 people, 100,000 people, you're aware that it's not particularly powerful. And so, um, yeah, and, and then there's all the history, all the all the things you're just talking about, Tim, just the uh, the history of, 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 you know, the colonization and just how, how historically Creole languages have been kind of looked down on, you know, Creole people kind of viewed as uh, maybe not as not as good. And so, Unfortunately, the stigma passes on. I wonder if uh, if another example of a standardized Creole language that's been adopted, uh, and I don't know much about it, but Tok Pisin, the Creole language of Papua New Guinea and kind of uh -huh. Pacific Islands. Like, right. I, from what I understand, it's kind of like the it's it's pretty standardized, like it's written um, and used pretty much uh, in that one. I wonder if it's be it's come to be associated with urban areas. And so I wonder if that hasn't lent it a, um, a uh, kind of um, status. You know, this is the, the language right. of the big city because it, it's when all these people coming from all over had to adopt this language to communicate with each other. Um, anyways, I don't yeah, know. that it, is a good point because among these lists of Creole languages that I was looking up, um, there are a number, but not a large number. We're talking like somewhere between five and ten Creole languages that have been made the official language of the country, uh, of a country, and that one, uh, Tokpisin or whatever it is, uh, is is uh, the I don't know if it's the only, but it is an official language of Papua New Guinea. Um, which then leads you to the number of speakers. It, uh, the numbers I was seeing is uh, there's just over 100,000 native speakers, but there are over 4 million second language speakers of that language. Wow. So, which, what an indicator of status, right? This is a language right. people are striving to learn. Right. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, it, it's viewed as useful in some way. Exactly. So, um, and, and there are a few in Africa as well that are um, have been adopted as uh, the um, national language, Congo, Kituba, um, 
anyway, there, there are a number of uh, Creole languages that are moving out of that status. And so I guess the takeaway for this podcast as we wrap up here is to um, kind of view Creole languages is, um, as a unique window to the, to the mind and to the linguistic process. And that these are languages that can be studied, that can be learned. And by no means should they be viewed as anything less. They are unique. Um, and uh, they're, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty cool. Tim, last thought. Mele Kalikimaka. That's okay. It's Hawaiian Creole. Actually, I'm not sure if that's Hawaiian Creole or, well, it's probably the, but there, there was a Creole language spoken in Hawaii. And um, so that, that's, anyways, we could break that one down all day, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Lead, Tim the lead lemming cox. <laughs> I want business cards that say that. <laughs> um, Matt, did you have any insights into Creoles before we uh, wrap up here? I think you guys covered it really well. <laughs> and we had Dr. McWhorter on our side. Yeah, that's right. Sure, he well, would uh, co-sign all of the information that we decided. We'll have him on next spot. time. So. You know, that's cool, <laughs> but this isn't learn it from doctors. This is learn it from... Uh, <laughs> we have a surprising amount of doctors on this. Uh, yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. Thing makes do. Me uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it, we're able yeah. to manage that by dumbing down the other half of the podcast participants. <laughs> the... <laughs> And that's what I that's why I hold down the fort here and bring everyone down to my level. Um, yeah, there's uh, all a whole world of, of languages to go out there and learn. Um, and I'd be interested, Tim, maybe, you know, um, a lot of people use like Duolingo apps like that. I don't know whether or not I'd imagine Haitian Creole is one of the languages you can learn. So go jump oh, on and God. start to start start learning and. and You'll find out some of the things that we learned in, in the podcast tonight. You'll see it really quick. Just some of the different syntactic and lexical rules that apply to Haitian Creole. And for us English language learners, uh, or or probably in that case French, it, it'll probably be a little bit easier than going out there and trying Russian or German or, um, uh, or Chinese. So <laughs> everything's easier than any Chinese language. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining the podcast. We'll be back again next uh, uh, episode, and we'll see you then. Bye.